Let us pray. Lord God, you know how many words I've prepared this morning, but we pray that each one of us shall hear the words that you want us to hear. We want to hear your voice, and we want to receive that fresh, renewing touch from you. So, Lord, we submit this time of studying your word into your hands. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was a boy, and I walked along Tottenham High Road, I always used to smile when I passed a certain big old house, because outside this house was a brass plate, and it said, Mr. Tuggum, dental surgeon. I suppose I was thankful that I wasn't one of his patients. I'm told that there is somewhere a medical doctor called Dr. Hertz. And I'm assured on very good authority that one of the executives of McDonald's in New York is actually called Zoe Hamburger. You imagine that, ringing McDonald's and hearing the answer at the other end. Hello, Hamburger speaking. My name's Gardner, but I haven't got green fingers. I have a long history of gardening failures behind me, planting things hurriedly in my garden, waiting hopefully for them to do something, seeing perhaps some flowers the first year and nothing much the second year, until one day I say to my wife, Jean, do you think we'd better dig that shrub up? And she'll say, I wonder when you were going to say that. And we dig it up and try again with something else. Well, if you live in Finch's Gardens, you will know that I've been very busy planting some shrubs in my front garden recently. But there's going to be a difference this year, because this year I've followed the instructions of my gardening friends and the gardening books, and I've planted these shrubs properly. I've dug out a big hole, mixed up some fertiliser with some lovely fresh compost, lovingly eased the compost around the roots, filled up the hole and gently but firmly trod down the soil all round and given them a good water and I shall keep on watering. When I'm away, my good friend Stuart Marsh will water them for me, I'm sure. And I'm longing to see our new shrubs grow. Now, in our autumn programme as a church, we are thinking about the theme, A Growing Church. And just to remind you that this coming Thursday evening, we have a talk here in the church on a worshipping church. But in our Sunday morning services, we are concentrating on how we as individuals can grow as Christians. When you think about it, there's not much difference between the two because if a church is going to grow spiritually, well, the people in it have got to grow. And I've been given the wonderful passage to speak on this morning. If you'd like to open your Bible, if you have one in front of you at page 1175, once again, to look at this lovely passage in Ephesians chapter 3 that I've just read. It's a tremendous passage because it tells how we can grow as Christians. But it's not an instruction manual. 
I know sometimes I've been guilty of talking about the Bible as a book of instructions, but it's much more wonderful than that. And this passage here in Ephesians chapter 3 is actually a prayer. It's a breathtaking prayer. It's mind-blowing. And it's from the Apostle Paul. He turned his back on dull, formal religion because he'd been overwhelmed by life. After a lifetime of weary study, religious rituals, law-keeping, he's now thrilled with the joy of knowing the Spirit of God possessing his whole being, giving him new agendas to life, giving him new goals, giving him a vision of the future that that we could imagine to be like a mountaineer, suddenly seeing the summit through a break in the clouds. And you know what? He wants us, each one of us, to have that same experience. He wants us to be gripped and thrilled by the joy of knowing Jesus and experiencing his love. Because this man who's been through an experience of dull formal religion knows how easily this new Christian message can so easily ossify into a series of routines. Things we have to do week by week. Rules we have to keep. And he doesn't want those dear new Christians in Ephesus to sink down to that level. He wants them to experience the love of Jesus Christ in all its fullness and the joy of being filled with the Spirit of God because he's turned his back on dull religion and he doesn't ever want it again. So he prays this open prayer. And it's not just for church leaders. It's not just for evangelists. It's for you and for me, for ordinary people in churches. (coughs) And this is the word of God to us because it's not just the prayer of an apostle. It's here to express something of the longing of God for what he wants for us. So how do we grow as Christians? How do we make progress in the Christian life? Well, for too long, Christians have gone about it the wrong way. Sadly, somehow, it seems that all there is to the Christian life is going to church on Sunday instead of going to the pub. Reading the Bible instead of reading the Daily Mirror. Going to prayer meetings instead of going to the cinema. Sometimes Christians have combed their hair in a different way. They've dressed differently. Sometimes they've even put on a funny voice to show how spiritual they are. All this sort of thing is just what I used to do to my plants in the garden. Yank them out of one environment and plonk them down in another one. No wonder they didn't grow. And no wonder so many Christians don't grow. Because Christianity this wonderful Christian life that we've been offered and we have embraced is more than just being transferred from one environment to another. It's more than giving up one set of habits and taking on a new set of habits. It's about something radical that happens inside my heart and mind, making me, as the Bible says, like a new creation. But we mustn't get 
hung up with terminology, must we? And sometimes we preachers are guilty of harping on about one particular term to describe the Christian life. We preachers often go on about the need to be born again, which is a lovely picture used by Jesus himself. A lovely picture of what it means to take on this new life in Christ. It's very useful, but it's only a metaphor. And it's only one among many, many, many metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe becoming a Christian. It talks about being set free, having the light of life, being saved, being redeemed, being reconciled, being justified, being made alive, becoming a new creation. All these are just attempts to describe something so wonderful that it can't be described in words. But I'll tell you what. If you've had that experience, you know, don't you? You know. It may not fit into my box. You may not be able to express it in words. But you know, if you've had that experience of discovering life, And if you're sitting there this morning not knowing what this experience is, wishing perhaps that you could have this experience of discovering life in Jesus Christ, talk to me afterwards. I'll be delighted to pray with you and help you to start on this wonderful road that I started so many years ago. I'm looking around at you this morning and thinking that some of you may be thinking to yourself, why does Mike keep going on about growing? I don't grow anymore. I'm old. Old age is the thing that stops us being excited about the things of God. Let me direct you to a lovely passage in the Psalm, Psalm 92. Do you know what Psalm 92 says? It says, the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. My senior citizen friends, are you fresh and green? What are we to do? Flourish. Twice. Flourish. What are we to do with a bare fruit? What are we to do with to stay fresh and green? So I don't want anyone switching off and saying, oh, Mike's giving one of his young people's messages. No, it's not. This is an all-age message. Okay, whether you're young or whether you're old, whether you've been on this Christian path for 50 years or five years, it's a wonderful message because God wants all of us, young and old, to come alive. So, getting back to our theme. What is this soil in which we are planted? In verse 17 and 18 it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp power wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Rooted and established in love. 
You know, the Bible's full of horticultural metaphors, isn't it? There's so much about vines and olives and thorns, etc. There's so much about fruit. But here's a beautiful gardening metaphor. If you're a gardener this morning, doesn't that create a picture in your mind being rooted and established? Lovely picture of me following the instructions, putting that new shrub in, carefully arranging the compost and the fertilizer around the roots, carefully treading it down and then watering it. Rooted and established in love, says the Apostle Paul. But of course the man who's praying this prayer hadn't always been rooted and established in love, had he? He'd been what we might call a religious fanatic, hounding down anyone who deviated from the orthodox line. He'd been a Pharisee, a rigorous Pharisee. But God had changed him so wonderfully that he could write these astonishing words that he writes in the letter to the Corinthians. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all, sorry, and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. They're such familiar words, let's try paraphrasing them. If I never miss a Sunday morning service, but have no love, my devotion is worthless. If I'm at every prayer meeting, but have no love, it's all a waste of time. If I give a tenth of everything I have, but do it without love, I'm just making an empty gesture. If I lead Bible studies and can explain the book of Revelation but have no love, I'm like a gate banging in the wind. The point the Apostle Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 13 is that without being rooted and established in love, it's nothing. Just like my dead shrubs standing there mocking me. So what is this love that we need to be so tenderly planted in? Well, of course, first and foremost, it's God's love to us. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is found in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that wonderful? It's the bedrock of our Christian life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't make the first move, he did. While I was far from God, Christ died for me. When this world was drab, when this world was lost in its selfishness and its stubbornness, Jesus Christ hung on the cross to show this sad world that God is love. When your life and mine was drab and empty, Christ died to shine the rainbow of God's promises into your heart and mine. God is love. It just occurred to me recently that nowhere in the Bible does it say God is judgment. Nowhere does it say God is wrath. It does say God is love. The most important thing about him. 
And if you're going through your Christian life believing that God is standing over you with a great big stick ready to thwack you if you step out of line, please forget that. That's not the message of the Bible. God is love. God is forgiveness. Now you may be saying to me, lovely message, Mike. But there are times when I don't feel God's love. There are times when I pray and it all seems a waste of time. There are times when I've poured my heart out to God and I felt that he just hasn't bothered, that he's a million miles away. There are times when I feel like praying with the psalmist. Why, O oh Lord, do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? There are times when I cry out in my distress with, with Jonah. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Have you had experiences like that? Rooted and established in love. What does our text mean then when, let's face it, all Christians go through times when they do not feel that love of God, when it seems just like empty words. Jean and I once went through a time of deep sadness. It was many years ago now. We'd been invited to spend the weekend with some dear friends of ours. And as we sat with them talking, suddenly it all poured out. And amidst our tears, we shared our sadness with our friends. And our friends listened, and they listened, and they loved us. The love in which we are rooted and established is not just the love of God, it's the love of one another. And often the way we experience God's love is through the love of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why the New Testament is so full of exhortations to love one another. Love one another sincerely from the heart. Love one another as brothers in Christ. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. You can't read many verses in the New Testament without coming across verses like that. Encourage us, exhorting us, because God knew how easy it would be to forget this. That the reason we're put in churches is to love one another. You know, we don't go to church to find a group of perfect people. We come to church and we find people who make mistakes. People who sometimes say things that upset us. People who are doing things wrong. People who have tried but failed. We come to church and find sometimes that we don't like the hymns. Or we don't like the preacher. Or the church service doesn't seem to meet my needs. We come to church because of Christ's command to love one another. We can't love one another if we're all sitting in our homes at home. 
What did Jesus say? He said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What was he referring to? The fact that we all go and gather in a building once a week? The fact that we carry a big black Bible under our arm? Do we wear a special badge or use special clothes? No, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Because you love one another, that's what distinguishes us from a club or a society or any other group of people. What distinguishes us is that we are a body of people who, for all our differences, for all our different backgrounds and educational qualifications, for all our different personalities, we love one another. Let me tell you a story. I'm sure some of you must have heard it before. It's a true story. And it's a lovely story. About a dear friend of ours called Anne. We happen to know several dear ladies called Anne, but this one isn't any of the ones you know. This lady is Anne Barrington, who for many years was happily married to Ken Barrington, the England cricketer. Now, Ken is retirement, moved down to the village we were living in at the time, to Great Bookham in Surrey. So Ken and Anne moved in, and Ken bought a little country garage and renamed it Ken Barrington Motors. And everything seemed set for a nice, happy retirement, active, but making new friends, making a new life. But if you're a cricket fan, you'll know that that didn't happen. Because within a few months of that, Ken Barrington was on a tour of the West Indies with the England cricket team. He was a selector. And he had a heart attack and died. So there was his wife, Anne, suddenly left in a new locality, hardly knowing any people, suddenly bereft, bereaved. Somebody invited her along to our church. And it so happened that it was the evening when the church was welcoming back a missionary couple who'd been absent from them for two years and was just coming back on their first home leave. It was Gina and myself. We'd been two years in Brazil. And we came back to that evening service and were overwhelmed by the tremendous love of the people of God welcoming us back, showing us such love and such, such joy. And Anne saw this and she couldn't believe it. She didn't know that such organizations existed where people loved one another so much and Anne felt herself enveloped and drawn up into that love of God. She gave her heart to the Lord Jesus and to this day she is a worshipping member of that church in Great Bookham. You see, these, are, these aren't just lovely words that we read in the Bible, it works. Our task is to obey. Our task is to put it into practice. And our task is to then see God at work. God working through a church that is growing, growing in love, rooted and established in love. If you happen to be walking through Finch's Gardens, you can inspect our shrubs in our front garden and see whether, in fact, they are growing. If for some reason you go away and come back to this church, perhaps in a year or two's time, I hope you will be able to see how this church is growing. God is looking at your life and at mine. 
not wanting to punish us. I believe that he is longing, and to use the words of the Apostle Paul, I believe that God is longing that out of his glorious riches, we will allow him to strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. And God is longing, I believe, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp our wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Help each one of us to know what we are to do and to give us the courage to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We close our service by singing what I think is one of the most wonderful hymns in our book, number 499. Lord of the church, we pray for our renewing. Christ over all our undivided aim. Fire of the spirit, burn for our enduing. Wind of the spirit, fan the living flame. Number 499.